0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening and welcome. My name is Patrice Petra. I'm the director of the Carsey-Wolf Center. Tonight, we are excited to explore the legacy and evolution of the reality TV show Survivor. The panelists will discuss the history of the show over the last two decades in a program devoted to Survivor at 20. This event was organized by PhD candidate Jeremy Moore. He will be joined by Miles McNutt, Assistant Professor at Old Dominion University, and Laurie Wallette, Professor at the University of Minnesota. I wanna thank Jeremy for all his hard work in making this event possible. I also wanna thank Professors McNutt and Willette for making the time to join us and to share their expertise on television, media industries, and broader questions of citizenship and belonging. Uh, Once again, for those of you who have been attending our virtual webinars, let me offer some brief remarks about logistics. Jeremy will moderate the discussion with Miles and Lori for about 45 minutes. We'll then have time for a few questions from the audience. There will be, these questions will be selected by the Carsey Wolf Center staff from the Q&A function on Zoom. You're welcome to use the chat function in Zoom to interact with one another during the event but if you'd like to submit a question for us to address to the panelists, please use the Q&A Q function. So with that said, it's now my pleasure to invite Jeremy, Miles, and Lori to the screen. Thank you so much, Patrice. My name is Jeremy. I am
1: the organizer and moderator of the event and I'm so excited to have with me here, Miles McNutt and Lori Willett. Thank you both so much for joining me tonight. Um, so I guess we'll go ahead and dive right into it. I have some questions here that I'd love to pick your brains on, on this crazy reality show that's been going for the last 20 years, just wrapping its 40th season last summer. But before we get into all of that, I want to actually begin with the first season of the show, which as we know, premiered over the summer of 2000 on CBS. I would say it's really hard to overstate how massively popular and commercially successful that show was at that time. And I was hoping you could say a little bit about that particular moment in the entertainment landscape and especially in television to get us started. Why did Survivor have such a moment in 2000? And how much was that success based on concepts and aspects of reality television that we might today consider tired and cliche? I'm
2: gonna let Lori start with them.
3: Oh, okay. Um, So I remember watching the first season of Survivor uh, on broadcast television, and I was—I um, had—I was in my first job, just like the first year into it, a new professor, and I thought it was riveting. It was so interesting; I couldn't wait for the next episode. And I think what it did is it, it presented um, ordinary people on television in a way that hadn't been done on prime time. So we've seen ordinary people, but in um, delegitimated contexts like daytime shows, for example. Uh, but this took these ordinary people and put them in this big, you know, high-profile primetime venue, um, and it serialized, um, you know, the 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 game and the story arc in a way that combined a lot of different elements: um, soap opera game show and I think that it was really really innovative in its moment and I think that is um, that has a lot to do with why it, it it registered and why it became such a phenomenon
2: And I think just to sort of add to that a little bit, so like in retrospect, now I look back and I think the fact that it was on CBS, I said like the real world had been running for almost a decade at that point, but it was MTV. It was for young people. It was not ordinary people by definition. It was sort of youth. It was sort of a different kind of irreverent culture by comparison to this sort of survivor was normal people. So if you have have Rudy next to Richard, next to Sue, next to these sort of big personalities to play that out, I think that sort of played a very significant role. But like In the year 2000, I was uh, basically by American standards a freshman in high school. And so I didn't view the show through the lens of what it was in terms of ordinary people. I saw it as this sort of phenomenon of particularly two things. One, family viewing. It was a show that we watched as a family that we all could watch together that we kind of perceived in that light, which I think for our family was, became reality TV over that period of time in the early 2000s. But also I remember very distinctly, my family that summer went went on like a road trip across Canada and we were camping along the way. So we weren't staying in hotels. So we sent the VCR at home back to make sure it could record survivors so We could catch up on the episodes we missed when we got home. When we went grocery shopping, we had to avoid the newspaper because they were publishing the results from the previous episode of Survivor that night in the paper, like above the fold on A1, there was like, go to the art section to see who got kicked out of Survivor after the merge. And I'm just like, in retrospect, that seems so crazy, right? That this phenomenon took up this sort of cultural moment. But that was how novel reality TV felt, and for those who maybe were younger then or weren't paying attention to the early seasons, it really, I like could say, it's impossible to overstate just how significant it felt. In retrospect, we learn what that says in terms of industry or structure, but just culture, right? In terms of penetrating those conversations, I think that was what I experienced when I was a kid.
3: I think that one of the points you touch on it being a mass program that's intended for a, a large audience is really significant too. Um something maybe we want to talk about a little later on how survivors um it's still with us but maybe not in that same way.
2: Yeah, no, I think the reality is that everything that used to be broadcast hits are now effectively niche programs by the audience that they're drawing, but I think I think we have to remember like that survivor season was watched by an average of over 50 million people like we're talking about something that even for the time was insane by today is inconceivable and yet by most standards today survivor is still more of a broadcast show than other types of programs the fact that it's still highly rated by contemporary quote unquote end time standards of low broadcast ratings it's just become a very different version of that It's an evolved market that the show has sort of had to evolve to fit itself into.
1: Right. It serves as a really interesting bridge between what was going on in terms of general media in 2000 and today, given that it's still the same show. And um, yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting that we're able to sort of time capsule different seasons of the show, whether we're thinking about it critically or just as a Survivor fan, you can sort of think of like where you were, what you were thinking at that time. Well, also, while we're here at the very start of this reality show, um, I'd like to consider maybe a little bit more specifically some of these fundamental elements that gave the show its structure. So we touched on a little bit. We have this cast of, like, quote-unquote, ordinary average Americans, right, Um, that have to work together to fulfill their basic survival needs. We have this mechanic where the contestants are voting each other out of the game, sort of majority rules style. We also have this mechanism where you can earn immunity by winning a challenge ahead of of those votes. And then finally we have this like flashy grand prize, $1 million at the end of the tunnel for these contestants. So I'm curious uh, from, from your two perspectives, what can the immediate success of this structure tell us about maybe some of the more specific political, socioeconomic values that were put behind the inception of this show and maybe how they were reflecting and maybe continue to reflect the contemporary moment that they're popular in.
2: I mean, just to the point of the cash prize, one of the things, one of my other memories of early Survivor was like an Entertainment Tonight report before the show debuted, talking about this crazy new reality show where they strand people on an island for a million dollars. And it sounded very much like Lord of the Flies in terms of how it was being presented. But what I remember about that first season was how much it was about interpersonal interaction and their relationships to each other and their efforts to sort of map this out. And really what they were trying to figure out was who were they as people And how were they to play this game? This game they didn't understand. The first season of a reality show is always such a fascinating social experiment because they don't know how it's supposed to work. They've never seen anybody else play it. They have to navigate their choices within a framework they don't fully understand. Do real world logic apply here, et cetera. That first season becomes this microcosm of that struggle. And then every season after that is like people trying to play survivor and people trying to be human beings in combating with each other and figuring that out. So I think the further survivor goes on, the more it becomes admired in its own mythology. But early on, it really did feel like this is people, this is society. These are people wrestling with their personal differences, their dislikes, their emotions. All playing out against this sort of framework that. Such I think those first seasons are, like you say, a time capsule of that moment in a way that the rest of the show functions as, but to a lesser degree. Yeah,
0: so, thank
3: you. thank you for that question, Jeremy. Um, I think it would be it would be useful to put survivor success within some contexts that can help us understand. Um, how this show kind of materialized and set the stage for um, reality television as a broader phenomenon. And I think one of those contexts is the economic context, the kind of industrial context in which Survivor became a hit show. So if you look to the scholarship on reality TV, there's a lot of work on um, the industry um, demands that um, and uh, dilemmas that kind of led to reality TV on primetime. Um, and some of those include um, the writer strikes that um, left the networks looking for um, alternatives to different forms of labor. Um, And some of them were network um, debt and refinancing and um, a search for cost-cutting measures. Um, um, Another really important one was the the implementation of new models of financing expensive productions like Survivor. the um the return of product placement as a way to avoid um zapping and the way that um we all run away from commercials whenever we can so survivor especially the first season has some really clunky product placements that um that are really important that set the stage for a transformation i think in in US TV, bringing it back to the fifties in terms of the, you know, blatant use of, of, of products. Um, and then finally, I think it's really, really important to situate this within global formats. So in, you know, the late um, 90s and the early 2000s, the formatting industry in TV was becoming increasingly important to the way that networks mitigated what they perceived as financial risks. So Survivor was based on um, a format. Um, it was originally Expedition Robinson, which was a Swedish production. And um, most of the primetime reality shows were based on formats that were bought and sold um, and you know, tweaked in, in different ways by different, um, different you know, production companies and different national context, but they were ultimately based on the same kind of template, which was tried and true, which was proven. So Survivor um, from an um, industry perspective, um, it, it really touched on a lot of dilemmas that network executives were struggling with and it um, provided um, a new way to think about the business of, of television. So that's one context. Um, the other context is the political context of the um, the um, to early 2000s and the you know late um 90s and I'm thinking of how important it was that survivor build itself as a social experiment if you go back to the first seasons and even even you know later on into um you know the the shows run there's this idea that it's a game and it's about winning but it's also constantly referred to as a social experiment and there's this idea that you know you put these people on an island and they're told to quote build a new society right and so the idea that um, the show was doing something other than just entertaining it was telling us something about human nature something about how um a society could create itself is really important in terms of how it fit within certain political developments. And I'm thinking of um, the downscaling of the public sector in particular, and the really the focus on um, self enterprise and self-reliance and market principles and um, the idea that, um, one is, um, you know, one's obligation is to be calculating and to be very strategic and increasingly about um, looking out for oneself. And I think we see in the early seasons of Survivor those kind of values pitted against um, almost a pre-modern, um, you know, tribal ethic of community and responsibility to a pre-capitalist, pre-modern society and. And that's where a lot of the tensions originate between, um, you know, kind of earlier versions of thinking about society and then this really cutthroat neoliberal environment that was um, was becoming more and more prevalent at that time.
2: Well, just sort of to kind of just to add to that briefly, like, I think one thing about that is like that, that the tension you're observing between originally the study of a social experiment, which I think is very prominent in those early seasons of Survivor, and then the game component, right? I think right now, Survivor wants to be both of those things it wants to be a game and a social experiment. And basically, anytime something comes up related to identity, class, race, gender, sexuality, as part of the game, Jeff Probst goes into social experiment mode where he's like, what we're really here to do today is settle these issues in society and how they figure it out. But most of the time he's in game mode, right? Which is like strategy and alliances and these kinds of things. And they don't want to deal with identity unless they have to. And so it's sort of like this idea of what the game is designed to do. It is always trapped a little bit between those two modes. And subsequent seasons, I think have argued, have run into problems where it's clear the game is a bad social experiment in terms of marginalizing groups of people based on inherent hierarchies that exist within society and yet they don't really adjust the game because the game works quote unquote to provide good entertainment but then the social experiment part like the IRB would not approve of this experiment i guess is what i'm saying right <laughs> that this is sort of a functionally broken system and yet that brokenness was so compelling early on because it's like, how is this gonna get resolved? How do we take the tensions of society, of political thought of life and turn those into this microcosm? That's super fascinating. But part of me is like 40 seasons in, like is there not anything you can do to try to figure out where that's broken and how it's broken and how we're maybe contributing to the social ills rather than simply sort of quote unquote reflecting or commenting on them, that sort of survivors long-term tension that they inherited from that initial decision from how the format was adapted for the American market. Right, wow, so much great stuff there. Thank you so much. Um,
1: Lori, I really appreciate the um, kind of industrial context that you're providing here right so we can move beyond thinking about it just uh, aesthetically or textually but also what's going on historically in terms of the industry um and how this kind of becomes like a magic bullet for the industry to solve a lot of their problems um and i think relatedly uh, miles you brought up uh well right there at the end but you also i think earlier called it like a lord of the flies style is sort of their hook right we're going to see how they navigate choices how do we come to some sort of resolution um and i think i think both of those things They touch on a lot of the things we want to talk about here today, but they also segue really nicely into my next question, which is about this transition from where we started to where we got to. And we might have touched on this a little bit already, but in terms of ethical dilemma and the overall question of morality in terms of this game that we're asking these people to play on television we've seen a huge shift in that over the history of Survivor, where in this first season, contestants are often seen debating with themselves and with each other the morality of building an alliance, voting in blocks. Um, Is that an ethical way to play the game? Whereas today, any such questions are really wholly absent um, from these modern seasons that presuppose that correct gameplay needs strategy, right? So... Um, What do you think are some of the factors that we might see as contributing to this paradigm shift from the way that the show presents itself? Is this coming just from the show? Is it coming from the contestants? Is it some
2: combination of the two, would you say? I mean, one thing I will say in that regard is that like, I think Survivor has taken on sort of like such a brand identity of what the game is and how it plays out and such a fan base. People still watching Survivor today are probably Survivor fans, right? We can like the broad audience, the general audience is likely no longer necessarily part of its core group. I mean, the people watching are in many ways more invested in Survivor as an entity than necessarily they are with any one individual. And so it's interesting that like, I think there's still always some tension, but if, anything i think that there was like a moment where it felt like they were casting a lot of like attractive people from los angeles who had never seen survivor before there was like a period of years where it seemed like they were just casting people off the street who had no idea how to play the game and fans were very frustrated because it's like they don't even get this they don't know how to play they don't know what's going on they're like in some way like uh, in some way tainting the game and what it represents um, and so I think they've moved more towards a fan-focused approach to that question, meaning that it's not about morality of voting or anything like that, but it's amazing how you can see somebody even in later seasons. I've been watching Kageyan, which is one of the seasons on Netflix. There's now two seasons there. This is season 28. So this is deep in the show's run. But like the way Cass plays the game in that season is so against a lot of principles. She lies, she does things, she knows are manipulative and knows work. But there's this great thing where she blindsides a group of people and she's doing an interview and she's basically just like, they're gonna forgive me, right? They're gonna forget about this. They're gonna need me in three days and they're gonna come back to me and it's gonna be like, this never happened. And it's like, that's not entirely true, but they do go back to her. She's not wrong about that. And yet watching it, I still found it transgressive. The way in which she was lying, like switching alliances, going against all of this. But I'd argue it's no longer transgressing a societal sense of morality. It's transgressing survivor morality. A survivor has taken on its own identity and subsumed topics that were once broader social understandings and created its own morality, its own sort of ethos by which it expects people to play. I think that's sort of been the transition shift from that early season, which felt more this is a social experiment to reflect real life. And now it's like this is another running of Survivor, um, which is its more sort of isolated experimental function in that respect.
3: That's super interesting. I think, in a way, um, as Survivor becomes more insular in the expectations on the part of the audience to, you know, to follow all of the seasons and to understand all of the machinations of the game and how it's been played. Um, I think that's one one of the ways it becomes a a niche program rather than a mass program. Um, But going back to those first seasons when, you know, Jeremy, you talk about how there's a kind of focus on ethics. Um, I rewatched the first season for this event, and it's true. I mean, there's constant dialogue. and anguish on the part of the characters you know um is it okay to have an alliance am i a good person you know um rudy initially won't join he doesn't you know want to gang up on people and um and i think that 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 really speaks to the kind of tension between uh, the fundamental tension of the show which is you know kind of collective interest versus self-interest and so that that's always there, but um, it is put on display um, in, in a way in those first seasons that, um, that um, allows for um, some experimentation on the part of the characters because those characters haven't yet learned to see themselves as characters. They haven't been trained in the conventions of reality TV or of Survivor. Um, or of you know playing oneself in a magnified, often stereotypical way, um, fully aware of you know the expectations of of reality TV producers, and so there's a you know reminds me of '50s shows like um, Queen for a Day, where the you know the ordinary people look like deers caught in the headlights, right? Because they don't know yet that. You know that 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 there are conventions and, and rules and and such. Um, so those early seasons, I think are, it's partly because of the newness of the format, and people haven't been um, they haven't been trained. That the production crews haven't. You know the the rules and the um, you know the kind of cliches haven't been set into motion as much, but. But also this idea of you know referring to previous seasons and you know kind of mastering um, an evolving game. I think that that that's super interesting because it, re- it 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 requires a lot for the viewer to keep up with all of that.
1: Right, and there's that wonderful moment there in that first season where uh, Sue Hawk makes the case that America runs on alliances. Um, and that's all they're doing in the game is when an insurance salesman joins a church to get meet new clients, he's building alliances and we might not call that unethical. So it's almost like they're they're learning that as they go and trying to convince each other and themselves. Um, and yeah, Miles, on your great example about uh, Cass McHugh in there and Survivor Kagayan, I believe she also has that confessional where she says, if I was doing the same things I'm doing now, but I was a man, I would be appreciated in my gameplay. Um, so maybe that is another example of just becoming more savvy of... Um, the ills of representation sometimes.
2: Well, I mean, definitely, I think certainly Survivor has been forced to, like, it's our evolution of our understanding of the game, fundamentally, has been shaped by how society's more clearly articulating issues of race and gender and sexuality as they play out, and that how those issues were handled in early seasons of Survivor is just not to handle them, and that over time Survivor has been forced by social circumstances and by circumstances of the game to better address those kinds of issues. But the game is also, I think it used to treat that as like, I think quite famously cook islands, the race divided season is a great case where they thought they could be the show that could like confront the race issue in America and very swiftly realized that it was not the format in which that was capable. And after that kind of moved forward. But I think the more people involved in the show perceive of themselves As gendered objects, right, as racialized objects and are allowed to express that and explore it. I think the more the the show gets into the consequences of who gets to be in an alliance, right? Who's in the bottom of an alliance that, but all of that sort of framework of how we understand Survivor, to Laurie's point, was shaped by choices they made in that first season, because that's what dictated how the game was played. Once Richard Hatch won that first season based on alliances he made, based on choices that he built and how that worked, that was a blueprint by which other survivor contestants play out. So, when we talk about the fandom of survivor, on some level, it's okay, a lot of information is in our heads. We're trying to think what number of season was that, who was that, how does that play out? Some be more memorable than others. But the thing is, there are archetypes, right? There are types of people that fit into certain molds that we can track character types and archetypes, not only that the show is constructing, but that people see themselves as, right? That, you know, somebody like Sir Spencer gets in the game and it's like Spencer sees himself as a certain type of person, a certain times, of contester. And then another person's gonna come along like Spencer, who's gonna see themselves as a Spencer type. Or a Cochrane type or these types of sort of individuals. And in doing so, the game sort of takes on the characterization. I love that you call them characters, Laurie, because I think that's like 100% true uh, in these contexts. And I think it requires us to remind ourselves how much those formats and archetypes and narrative structures are embedded in each season, but also get challenged by those moments where people are like, actually, I'm not just a villain, I'm a woman being villainized by nature of how my actions are being perceived. I would argue that Cass as a man would have just been treated differently, but still would have been ostracized because she plays that game so aggressively in any context. And I think that's going to to disrupt things regardless. But there's no question she was approached differently and treated differently as a result of that. That's sort of the byproduct of how that plays out. And there's a lot of that comes, plays through. I think this has always been part of Survivor. I just think society started having a larger conversation in the last decade or so that has sort of made that more a part of the sort of second half of the show's life.
1: Certainly, yeah. And I think, so certainly a lot more we could say about uh, representation on Survivor, both in, in casting. But I think we it's hard to go much further on this topic without discussing perhaps the most controversial word in reality television, editing, uh, to my mind. So many unpopular reality television contestants who the show portrayed as some combination of villainous, incompetent, otherwise unlikable, have claimed that it's only because of the editing of the show. That paints them that way. They usually invoke this argument that, that might be fair that for every three days of playing Survivor, roughly, we're seeing about 40 minutes uh, on our screen on television. So, how, from your perspectives, do you think we should understand and treat the edit? Um, is the answer different if we're looking at it more scholarly than more casually fan studies? But what do you make of this, this argument about the edit, and do you think it has a place in understanding reality TV?
3: So As someone who's been thinking about reality TV for longer than I expected, let's just put it that way, Um, and I I teach reality TV, I've kind of over the years um, begun to think that maybe that's not the right question, not that we shouldn't talk about it, but I think that um, everyone knows that reality TV is highly packaged, including Survivor. there, it's a story, right? It's a piece of entertainment that needs to attract audiences, uh, it needs to attract sponsors, and it's basically the same story every season with slight twists and variations, and you know, slightly a fresh set of you know characters on the assembly line, right? But it, it's basically you know a story about meritocracy, right? And it's a story about, um. A particularly ruthless survival of the fittest, and and I think that um, what's most important about it is the endurance of that story. You know, as a piece of entertainment, Um, not necessarily um, that it's it's you know real or fake or scripted or not scripted or how scripted, um, but just understanding these um, these programs that. Um, that enlist ordinary people to tell particular kinds of stories. And so that's kind of where I'm at with, with reality TV is, um, is less about, oh, caught, you know, we caught you, you know, that you did this or you manipulated that um, almost, you know, going into it. I think we can assume that a great deal of it um, is de- predetermined by, you um, by conventions, by um, economic demands. And and yet there's still like these stories, right? And what are they telling us? And what, you know, how do they enlist um, ordinary people um, to create meanings or new societies or experiments or, you know, ideas about how to live in this world? And so for me that, that, um, That's still important no matter how real it is or isn't.
2: Yeah, I think sort of to echo that, certainly, like, when I, when I talk to my students in a radio TV class that I'm about to start teaching next week, like, like, in those circumstances, like, it's clearly, like, they know it's not real, but I think the extent to which it's edited, the strategies that can be used, not everybody necessarily knows the degree to which different things can be. They can take a soundbite from one moment and attach it to another. Um, like, looking at, like, break breakdown tribal councils, because it's, like, you see all sorts of reaction shots from other people. You have no idea if they're reacting to what the person just said. That could have been from a completely different perspective. of that conversation, but it sort of creates this sort of dynamic. I think it's really useful to break down the practices as a storytelling technique to help better understand how that's being accomplishing. But it's not really presented as, oh, it's fake. What does that mean? The fact that it's fake is embedded within the genre. We know it's not fully real. We know it's not fully authentic. We're not getting a full 24-7 picture of this. It's shaped into a narrative. The question for me is, how is that done? What are the strategies that are being used? How can we kind of observe them and see them? But also why is it being done because sometimes it's being done, they need to fit people into certain narratives right and obviously producers are manipulating this from the moment they cast people to the moment they do interviews with them leading questions everything it's not even just editing it's every piece of the process, trying to turn each person each cast away into the character they need to be that's the nature of that and that can shift and change as the game changes. But it's also a matter of like, oftentimes more recently, it's been, okay, this tribe had a huge reckoning about the use of the N-word and issues of race that was just never part of the show's narrative. And the idea that there's entire stories that just aren't told, that the idea of editing is not just an individual's perspective, a sort of more like individualistic, my like reputation was tarnished because they made me look like a villain or they made it seem like I was this way. But it's much more like what dynamics between these people were not deemed relevant to the narrative, but were actually important to them as people would have helped us better understand them. One of the other things happening in Survivor, there's a huge spreadsheet you can see where they did the data talking about the amount of screen time that people have specifically thinking about sort of uh, non-white contestants and the way in which they're marginalized by the edit and the way in which we can think about what that says about who gets to be part of Survivor and who gets to be part of the story. Those to me are the questions of editing I'm interested in, less in terms of the fact of editing itself and more like how is that actually manifesting? What is the labor of editing doing to the narrative in that process? Yeah,
1: I think that's a great way to put it. I, it, It's similar to what I've always sort of thought is that we should just be aware of what's going on with these strategies, right? That they are tools for producing this reality show that that can be employed in multiple ways. Um, so just having an awareness of, of what those things are, whether you are, especially if you're going to be a contestant or whether you're a viewer in some, some level, um, it's always gonna increase the level of critical analysis form on a media product like this. Um, we've been sort of dancing around Uh, this idea of representation this whole time. So I want to get into the uh, recent pledge that CBS signed, the 50% uh, BIPOC pledge in which they are committing to at least half of their cast being made up of Black, Indigenous, and or other people of color moving forward again, assuming production starts with, with COVID related issues. Um, so Survivor, as we've discussed, has always carried a rocky reputation in terms of diversity. Um, it's often been criticized for casting token members of minorities in numbers that are hugely dwarfed by predominantly straight white contestants. Um, as you mentioned, Miles, there was the season Survivor Cook Islands in 2006 that divided the tribes along racial lines. Um, so, I know we've been discussing this. If if there's anything else you want to add, just in light of this 50% pledge, what responsibility do you think Survivor has, if we're going to think of it in terms of responsibility for providing positive reputation or at least equal reputation for minorities? Um, And do you think this 50% pledge does enough, or is there still more that we need to work on?
2: I mean, well, there's first record, there's always more we need to work on at all times, in all capacities. But no, to your point, I think the 50% casting pledge is a great start, but the reality is is that casting does not solve the core of the problems, which is how do producers imagine the narratives and stories about these individuals and sort of how that can play out. So I think the, the shift in casting, that's a starting point, right? We're taking the origin of how a cast is formed, But like, what does that casting process look like? What roles are they imagining for them? What stories can they tell with them? And it's like, I don't want them to start imagining this thing a blind cast way, because that doesn't accomplish the fact that if it's a social experiment, race matters. It's going to matter to decisions they make in terms of how that plays out. When I was watching Kageyan, I was fascinated because Jatia starts that season as like the perfect example of an ostracized member of minority who then proceeds to do something incredibly reckless, endangering her entire tribe. And you're like, she's gone like by all survivor standards the minority goes first if you've got that first vote that just seems to be how it plays out and the game has never found a way to solve this or resolve it it's just sort of how it works but then jatia doesn't go and i remember being like wait wait that's not how this is supposed to work which seems bad to me because i'm like no that this should be a decision based on other factors get rid of the old white dude uh who kind of doesn't care, like we're fine with that. But I think the tension of that is something the game is always going to wrestle with. My question is does Survivor commit to actually wrestling with what a more diverse cast says about its quote unquote social experiment or do they try to just present the visibility of race and sort of accept that as, well, this is our diversity not actually diversity of story or sort of narrative that to me is actually more important to helping Survivor move past where it currently is. So.
3: Um, Just kind of adding to that, um, you had mentioned, Jeremy, the Cook Island um, season where they divided the tribes um, according to race, and I looked back at that season, and what was fascinating to me is much more than um, other seasons of Survivor, uh, there was a discussion and a critique of the show, um, and, and how, you know, many, many of many of the Contestants felt that they were being put into, um, you know, it, conditions that were ripe for stereotyping, and there was a lot of reflexivity, um, probably um, unintended on the part of the production itself. Um, so I just, I, I wanted to bring that up, um, just to think about how, in its, you know, social experiment, which is really about the show adding new twists to keep it fresh. Some of these moments, um, the Amazon episode season as well, where they divided the tribes and the basis of gender, is really interesting for the way um, it it facilitates a conversation about gender. That's not about, you know, we want a positive representation as if we know what that is, but it actually provides a discussion um, and it it allows for a kind of debate and, um, and for contestation. Um, But in terms of the the pledge, um, you know, I hope that I hope that they CBS follows through. I mean, companies make a lot of pledges and moments and, you know, then they kind of quietly disappear. But my thinking is that I agree with what Miles said, and I also think that, um, you know, In a sense, like I said before, Survivor is a story about meritocracy, which is a very fraught and problematic way of thinking about um, a capitalist, um, um, white supremacist, um, patriarchal society, right? The idea that the, you know, winners are determined on the basis of their merits rather than on a, a rigged set of hierarchies. So, if Survivor opens up, you know, the game of meritocracy to equality of opportunity, it's still going to be pr- promoting this idea of a meritocracy um, that is independent of the very real conditions of our existing society. So, you know, I'm not convinced that you know equal representation. Um, going to dislodge the overall mythologies of Survivor in any way. It,
2: it hasn't historically, right? Like there's always a tension, like you look at like they divide them by class distinctions or by generation mm-hmm. or things like this and it's like the game starts with that but as soon as the tribes merge those narratives are sort of designed to break away, right? At that point you have, you, you know their characters now. They're not purely defined and then eventually they're at the final tribal council and all of a sudden it's like I'm a David and he's a Goliath and I'm like that theme made no sense from the very beginning first and foremost but more importantly it's this idea of just like that it doesn't become that anymore that we're more the basic message of Survivor is if we divide ourselves by these differences in the end we're all just trying to survive we're all just outwitting outlasting and outplaying each other and it's like well no that never actually goes away they're gonna go back to the real world and very much be kind of That dynamic. And yet, I think the show uses that tension to create initial interest and initial narratives before we know who these people are. But once they have individual narratives, they don't actually care about those types of questions anymore. And so I think that's again where the game is trying to. to, Themes are a form of differentiation between seasons to draw interest to draw difference. The, the show is very good at articulating sort of the iteration of the format. It's it lasted for 40 seasons. Obviously, it's done a very good job of that. But I think the tension of that has always been there and will continue to be there, particularly if they're casting diversely but still running themes independent of that. Like, it's, how do they reckon? How do they reckon with that in addition to whatever they story they want to tell? Um, the editors have to really rethink the way they make the show, for the show to really change, and I don't perceive that happening in such an iterative genre.
1: Yeah, so before we turn to some audience questions, I do want to ask about um, maybe one or two specific, uh, maybe not so fun incidents that have occurred on Survivor in the last few years. Um, Probably, maybe most infamously, you had on Survivor Game Changers in 2017, a very ugly incident where Jeff Varner outs His fellow tribe mate Zeke Smith is transgender. Um, And he actually does this in service, in his mind, of making the argument that it demonstrates Zeke's deceptive personality, that he hasn't told anyone he's transgender. Um, So the tribe gets rid of Varner unanimously that night. Survivor actually does win a GLAAD Media Award for their treatment of this controversy. But many fans and media outlets online still blamed the show even more so than Varner for putting the players in this position in the first place where Zeke Smith was in the position to experience this uh, very real trauma. And then also the fact that they aired this incident. Um, Many fans said that, you know, Varner may have outed him to the contestants, CBS outed him to the nation. So kind of putting these abstract ideas we've had into a more specific circumstance, I'm interested in what you think this incident reveals about Survivor in terms of the treatment of the contestants. I think we've talked about that a little bit so far, but also what your thoughts on are on whether Survivor should have aired this incident. And if not, how could they have maintained a narrative cohesion going forward um, if, if they don't choose to show this incident?
3: So one of the other things that we had discussed just to tie these together was the sexual harassment on a, a fairly recent season. Of Survivor, and I think that what's what we need to think about in some ways is that the people who are on these shows—they're workers, right? I mean, they they are being in some ways compensated for their participation in the show. And once we think of Survivor as a workplace, you know, it it becomes easier to think about problems. the role or responsibility of the production company in terms of harms to um, to its employees, um, and the problem with reality TV is that these relationships aren't formalized. So um, it, it relies on confidentiality confidentiality agreements and uh, lots of um, lots of paperwork and lots of things that the you know that contestants sign away many many rights that they might otherwise have in a workplace and and so it becomes more difficult to, to hold the companies accountable right and so for CBS for survivor you know ratings and and profit is is as everything so I'm not at all surprised that they aired the episode or um, um, or that they might even you know, try to capitalize on it, you know, same with the sexual harassment. Um, I think that unless, you know, unless the way that we think about reality TV is fundamentally changed, though, I don't see contestants having um, the same sorts of protections that they would legally be able to claim in a workplace.
2: I think, and that sort of speaks to there's some questions about labor in the QA we can get to, but like, I think it's a big question of like, what rights do they have as laborers and how does that sort of play out? I think the reality for me is like, whether or not you air it or not, the narrative cohesion question, I think there's ways around that. I think obviously they had to face very, I, 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 I'm sure they had very long conversations about how to handle this, but I think what they ultimately rest on is this idea that Survivor is a teachable program that it has the capacity to give us lessons about the real world that we can learn from what we're experiencing. And so like tied to the episode airing, there was a Hollywood reporter op-ed sort of by Zeke Smith talking about the experience and sort of framing you know his side of the story, which is again, that effort to suggest that Survivor is building through. And through the sexual harassment storyline, it was very clear that on the ground, the way probes was framing that in tribal councils, as they were having these big debates about gender and harassment and race and these kind of issues, you know, he seemed almost excited about it. Like he's like, here it is, right? Here's this amazing comment we're making, like how relevant our show is, how we're kind of reflecting what's going on in society. And I'm just like, okay, but you didn't reflect on it enough to have people in the production able to identify sexual harassment happening and to be proactive in dealing with it instead of having to see it accumulate over time and then retroactively engage with that, right? Or that they couldn't have sort of done what, like, so the question for me is like, what happened in the interviews of producers with Jeff Varner that led him to make that move? right? That Did they perceive that as being this violation, what he did? Were they surprised by it were, or were they stoking the flames of that? Because that's what they do by nature. That's the producer's job is to convince them to do that. To me, the show would argue that by presenting this narrative, we're creating a teachable moment for the audience. But I think the reality is that the contestants then are turned into objects, right? Who can serve to kind of that teachable moment. And that's not necessarily what they signed up for. It is literally what they signed up for based on their contracts, but certainly that's not necessarily a fair expectation. And so I think the question of how they are being handled, the options they have for reporting of who they're reporting to, a lot of what ended up happening from the sexual harassment situation was like, hey, like what procedures were in place to keep this from happening? And the answer was nothing. And so that's where I think they're starting to pick away at like what tools do they have at their disposal and the reality is that survivor has now had you know they will have had almost 2 years to figure that out between when the last season was filmed and when this one is actually implemented, where they can maybe reckon with this in some context. Um, I'm not deeply uh, convinced that it's going to embed itself into the production as much as it needs to, but I certainly think that it's now our responsibility, any any fan's responsibility, to foreground those concerns and issues as the show continues into whatever version it comes back as in the near or distant future.
1: Right. It's interesting how this feels like a very pivotal moment for Survivor, um, here right after their All-Star winner season, but not necessarily in the way that they thought it would be, where they sort of thought it's our big uh, celebration, this is our pivotal moment, but really the pivotal moment is how are we going to respond to all of these, these many controversies that have been arising? It connects really nicely with... a uh, a question that the great Max Dawson brought up to us in the chat here. Um, Max says, hold up, bro. I invite the panelists to talk about the exploitative nature of reality TV labor, which is what we were just touching on. But he also adds uh, part of the reason that the show has remained on COVID hiatus, even as other shows have resumed filming, is because of Survivor's reliance on the local Fijian workforce. So Survivor been filming uh, in Fiji, I think, for like the last five or so years regularly. Um, and of course, tax concessions, then there are the contestants. So also thinking about sort of the crew that goes into these, who very much are workers a little bit more explicitly.
2: And that's where I just, Lori, when you were talking earlier about the economic trajectory of Survivor, it's like Survivor starts as like product placement because no one wants to buy ads. Then all of a sudden it's a huge hit. Everybody wants to buy ads. Product placement fades away a little bit. And then eventually product placement comes back because nobody's watching anymore. And now production tax incentives are really what's driving the finance to keep the show on the air in the way it does. It really is a mi- wonderful microcosm of those narratives from that point.
3: Hi, Max. <laughs> I wish we could see <laughs> you. I wish you were here. Um, I think that that's a really great point. I mean, the fact that um, the show no longer has its own unique locations and it's permanently based in um, in Fiji, at least for now, um, that might change um, with the pandemic. But I mean, that's a real um, economic situation, right? I think that the government of Fiji provides like 45, subsidizes about 50% of the show in exchange for you know promoting um, tourism and whatever else um, they think they get out of it. But the labor conditions um, in reality TV are already atrocious for um, behind the scenes labor. Um, in the way that you know, unionized production um, gives way to much more freelance, precarious work. And here, um, this is um, even further compounded um, by the kind of global outsourcing of the of the labor. So I think that that's a really, really important point. I mean, at at every level, um, the the program reality programs and survivor, being a big um, name uh, example, um, are extracting value from people and their work um, in redefining those relationships in ways that are um, ever more exploitive.
0: Yeah,
1: just a couple more questions here as we begin to wrap up um, from the audience. I have one here from Catherine who asks, how do you think social media has changed Survivor? And how it's played. So changing gears maybe a little bit, but where do you see social media's
2: influence impacting Survivor, the way it's played, and I guess also the way it's presented? I mean, certainly again, I'm sure Max again, Max was here. He has lots of thoughts on his season where they actually tried to muzzle people on social media while it was airing, which was a fascinating moment of tension in that way. I think what social media has done is it's created a culture in which people who are on Survivor have an ability to directly connect to the audience and to tell a version of their own story, right? That social media allows you to create this sort of identified version of self, right? This self brand that you can then leverage and sort of move on from that point. Meaning that like Survivor can turn you into a low level influencer. Um, Survivor contestants are on Cameo selling messages, right? Things like this. Like it gives them the ability to take the character that the show is constructing and developing and sort of moving through and subsequent from that, then turn that into a commodified self that can then be sold based on that. And I think again, that blurring of the line between character and reality is like social media on the one hand, encourages them to be like, I'm not that person, right? I'm a nice person. I'm not the villain. I'm not that case, right? So it kind of challenges narratives, but it also gives them every reason to take the story that was told, the character they became, and then turn that into a profitable engine for them and their individual. I think that kind of relationship and reality has changed how people perceive what being on the show means to them. But of course it has also exposed them to how much hate and vitriol and sexism and racism and just the awful kind of psychological impacts. Max mentioned the sort of impact on the people themselves, right? The contestants, the ethics of being on reality TV, the consequences of being part of this experience is now facing a huge amount of hate for your actions that you might not have otherwise been exposed to. To me, that adds into that such that like if I were to be on Survivor, to then go on social media after that would be a risk, depending on one's identity, that I feel like uh, reminds ourselves that these are real people, and yet at the same time, the internet's not always gonna treat them that way in that context.
3: So as we kind of, it looks like we'll be winding down soon, um, this question of social media. um, So the philosopher um, Baudrillard, some of you may know, um, in in some of his final writings, he wrote about um, Loft Story, which was the French version of, um, of the real world um, and about the emerging trend of reality television more broadly. And he argued that um, the appearance of ordinary people on these shows and the implementation of mechanisms like voting, amounted to a kind of compulsory participation in, um, in, in an increasingly symbiotic television universe that there's no outside. Um, there's really, we're all um, required not only to watch but to be part of and to constantly reproduce um, a social world um, that is indistinguishable from its mediation. And I think about that a lot um, in terms of social media, because we see in the early seasons of survival already, the voting and the ordinary people. Um, And now, you know, we've seen the rise of many different forms of social media that didn't exist um, in the year 2000. Um, But if anything, I think that that kind of symbiotic um, process that Baudrillard wrote about has become tighter. And I think it's worth noting that you know Mark Burnett, the producer of Survivor, um, would go on to produce The Apprentice, which resulted in you know we know what, right? Um, so I think that it's important to maybe to think about um, this as a as a process that has intensified, um, and that is um, not unrelated to our current dilemma in some ways.
1: Yeah, thank you. Well, I know we've touched on a lot of very heavy subjects here. So uh, for our last question, I'm going to try to keep it light, um, so we can leave on a positive note. Uh question from the chat, Christina asks, uh, who are some of the players and were winners that you think were the most impactful on the show uh, as a franchise, and maybe change the trajectory of the series? And I guess the the piece that I would add is just we may have made Survivor sound like this uh, horrible capitalist media monster across the last hour, which we could talk about. But if there's anything you sort of want to encourage people that might not be familiar with Survivor to check out, like a season or an episode, um, that might be another good way to end. So if you have a player you want to name or just anything about Survivor you sort of want to uh, plug or cheerlead for a little bit, um, uh, I'll turn it over
2: to you too. Lori, I'm curious who stood out when you were revisiting some like the first season and everything like who really stood out to you in your memory.
3: Um, I remember watching it vividly. Um, So the final four, of course, because they ultimately had more screen time and they had formed an alliance. I don't think I remember um, liking any of them, but they were all very, very riveting. Um, I think Richard Hatch has to be named as like one of the most enduring personalities associated with Survivor. Um, and, in you know, um, of course the winner of that first season. And um, I would also just say to your point, Jeremy, that you know, we can critique survivor. And I, you know, I opened by saying I was riveted by it, partly because I was a new professor and it felt a lot like trying to get tenure, you know, was the, the competition and the That's too real.
2: That's too real. Lori. <laughs>
3: um, so I think also the Amazon season was fascinating to me because, um, dividing the, the tribes among gender lines, um, really, um, allowed for ways of accessing characters um, that some of the other seasons didn't provide.
1: Yes, and I want to thank you two both so much again for being here and for giving us so much to think about. I know one of the reasons I love Survivor is um, you can keep revisiting it with a critical eye and, and just see new things every time. It makes you think, it makes you laugh, it makes you cry, sometimes all at once. So really appreciate you two being here. I really appreciate all of our, Attendees for joining us and everyone from the carsey Wolf Center for putting this together.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.